sense that the church at home remembered them. The worst thing that can happen is somebody gets sent to the foreign mission field by a church that forgets they're even out there and they put their little picture up on the, on, you know, some place on, and nobody ever talks about them. Nobody ever prays for them. The prayer meetings don't even hardly exist or nobody shows up. And if they're not showing up, they're not even, they're not remembering. You, you know what you need? You need pastors that are constantly putting these needs forth. Why? So that people can put themselves in the place of the people in wherever they are, whether they're in prison, whether they're in Myanmar in civil war situations, whether they're out on the foreign mission field, or whether they're, you know, our brother who is, say, you know, going, uh, Dale, maybe we don't talk enough about what Dale's doing up in in Cumbria, and, and he's been persecuted in, in his work and out on the streets and you know, we need to put ourselves in these positions. That's that's what's involved in this, as though in prison with them. And here's here's what's interesting. Earlier in the Hebrew letter, we read this. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison. Now, that's in Hebrews 10, where the author of Hebrews recognizes that they had compassion on those in prison. So why now, three chapters later, does he say, remember? Listen to this. It says, you had compassion on those in prison. You may want to notice. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. You say, what's all that about? You know what happens? If Christians are being persecuted so badly that they're being put in prison, and then you go show up at the prison, and you're bringing food. And they suddenly recognize, well, they must be Christians too. And it was resulting in these people being persecuted and having their stuff plundered. I mean, can you imagine? You're so putting yourself in the place of these people and you're showing up there at the prison and you're bringing them food and you're bringing them the scrolls that Paul desires to have and maybe some clothes to keep him warm. And these guards over there say, there's there's more of them. You know what? We're going to pay that guy a visit because we're going to plunder his stuff and nobody's going to protect him. We're going to be able to get away with that. We'll be able to steal that guy's furniture and nobody's going to say anything because they're a Christian. They're off scot. That's the kind of thing that was happening. They were getting their stuff plundered. But again, back to my question. Why at the end of the letter does the author encourage these folks to remember those in prison when the fact is that they had had compassion on those that were in prison? Why? Because the verb is past tense. They had compassion. See, what do you mean? Brethren, we're forgetful. Because just when you say, yep, I'm going to remember, we get forgetful. We become so self-absorbed and so consumed with our own problems. It is a very rare Christian that can go through their own problems, even deep problems, and remember the problems of others at the same time. It is an exceptional person, although it seems normative Christianity, when you can actually esteem your own problems small and those of others greater, which is actually what we're pressed to do. Brethren, you know what happens? Out of sight, out of mind. 
That's one of the reasons why when the church gathers together, we need to constantly keep each other in remembrance of the needs in the world. And I know we don't do it enough. We need to do it more. But we gotta, we gotta put ourselves in the place of others. And if you're gonna do that, then you've gotta think. You've gotta think, you've gotta think about what kind of conditions they're in. You gotta think where they're at. Think, 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 think. Hear Paul. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You see what that is? That's putting yourself in the place of others. Somebody suffers, I suffer with them. You'll never suffer with somebody else if you're not putting yourself in their position and feeling what they feel. It'll never happen. How do you do this? Well, you got to think about what others are, are going through. Paul takes us even higher when he says in Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. See, I said, that's, he makes it sound like this is kind of normative Christianity. And yet that's pretty exceptional. 1 Corinthians 10.24, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. And I recognize both of these passages. They have a certain context. And we have to be thinking about others when it comes to our liberties. And I know what he's talking about there. But brethren, you, you see, Paul wants us minded to think about other people. So there it is. If mankind would simply implement this rule of life, think about it. They're practically be heaven on earth. No? Not quite. Because even if we implemented this and we each treated each other this way, we still have a problem with God. And there's still death. And there's still the devil. But you know what? If we all implemented this golden rule and we lived by it, you just think about it. Think about if we treated each other according to this this rule. This principle, there'd be no more war. I mean, if all mankind treated it, there'd be no disputes, there'd be no quarreling, there'd be no murder, no, no abortion, no jealousy, no envy, no backbiting. There'd be no divorce, no infidelity. It'd all be gone. No one would steal from one another. Nobody, nobody would harbor resentment or bitterness or unforgiveness. No one would hate. They'd rape, steal. Slander, gossip, dishonor, no insults. I mean, our, our schools wouldn't teach our children trash. In fact, our children would not be in danger to walk down the street in the middle of the night. If somebody found them, they'd just bring them home. Why? Because everybody's doing unto others what they would have done unto them. It'd be like Sandra getting lost when she was a little girl and just riding off. And that was a country where a lot of people did live by that rule. And you know what happened? Nobody murdered her. Nobody, nobody took her off. Nobody kidnapped her. Somebody brought her home. Well, see, that's how it'd be everywhere. It's, we, we, we didn't have to worry about any of this. There'd be no families putting grandma or grandpa in, in the, in the nursing home, none of that. Children wouldn't make fun of each other. They wouldn't mock each other. They wouldn't be cruel. We wouldn't see what we see when we look out our window to the playground and the school over there, and we see you know kids being mean to each other. And you get a little chunky kid, and he's overweight, and he's standing in the corner, and you see he's all by himself. And we we're over there looking out the window, and we're feeling bad for them. And somebody comes up and pushes somebody in the head, and there would be none of that. None of that at all. Nobody would be in a lab somewhere in Wuhan making up, you know, some some new 
virus to kill a bunch of people with, and nobody be creating vaccines that that was only for their monetary gain without giving consideration whether it actually really did help people or not. I'm not saying I know what I'm just saying. Listen, pharmaceuticals do all sorts of things. We wouldn't have any of that. You wouldn't have people just trying to make money at, at whatever cost. You wouldn't have people modifying our food. It, though they care not for the health benefits of it, they just care about the, the end dollar, pound, uh, how much is in their pocket. Nobody would cheat. Nobody would embezzle. Nobody would do any of these things. So the question is, I mean, look, the whole world's been confronted by this golden rule for 2,000 years. If this is such a glorious standard to live by and it fixed so much of what's wrong in the world, why aren't men and women and boys and girls lining up to do it? Why isn't it the universal law? James perhaps gives us as good an answer as we find anywhere. For where jealousy and selfish ambition. The New King James says self-seeking. The KJV says strife. This is a very interesting word, strife. We think of quarreling. But it actually, this is a word that has to do with just selfish ambition. Self-seeking. It says where there is jealousy and self-seeking. Where they exist. There will be disorder in every vile practice. There it is. You got selfish people. You're not going to end up with golden rule keepers. You're going to end up with every vile practice. Even more graphic terms. Listen, you know what? You know these words. Paul says, We ourselves were once passing our days in malice, envy, Hated by others and hating one another. And you know, that doesn't mean that lost people can't be at least moderately kind. But you know, it's all for self-serving purposes. It's for reputation. It's for what I can get out of. I don't want to be disliked. I don't want to be thought negatively of. Brethren, we are users in our lost state. We use people. We, you know, you know what's happened. The whole thing can be brought down to self. Selfish. Self-consumed. It's self-deification is, is really. Our Lord would have us love our neighbor as our own self. But you know what the problem is? I don't care about my neighbor. You tell me, you can tell me to love my neighbor all day long and love him as I love myself, but I don't care about him. I mean, bottom line, that's the issue. They're nothing special. I am God. That's really it. There's no room for anyone else on this throne. And listen, the devil came along in the very beginning and said, you eat that fruit, you'll be like God. And you know what man said? Yeah, I want to be like God. And he's wanted to be God ever since. And he thinks of himself as God. And he treats others... I mean, he treats others as though they need to bow to him. Introduce everybody else as though he's entitled. Entitlement. Ah, everybody. I mean, you know, the idea of treating others like I myself want to be treated? I don't think so. That's the very thing I have zero disposition to do in my lost state. Now, you can tell me all day long, 
oh yeah, I'll be kind to others, but it's only because I want to be liked. And if, and if that guy that I'm wanting to be friends with, if he all of a sudden turns on me, well, enough of him. I'll go somewhere else. I mean, we'll be kind to others to a degree so long as it serves our prayer. Yeah, well, you know, well, that's my father. Yeah, but see, it's your father and you identify with him. And so the very fact you identify with him, you'll stand up and you'll protect his honor in front of somebody else. You don't like when somebody says something bad about your dad, but you'll hate your dad and fight with your dad and you and your dad will have a rift between you forever so long. I mean, that, that kind of stuff happens all the time. We, we are great as long as something serves our interests and it makes us look good. But by nature, we have no capacity to do to others that which we desire to have done to us. Why? Because the whole time we're thinking constantly about ourself, our own pleasure, our own likes, our own wants, our, our own reputation, our own applause. This is, this is what sin has done to mankind. It's, it's precisely that. You, you know, something interesting happened to me when I got saved. There was a, there was a nursing home that I, I went to university at Western Michigan University. My hometown was about 20 miles away. And I lived up there at campus and there were times I lived at home and drove back and forth. And there were times that I just lived there and I had a lot of buddies back there and family was back there. Anyway, I made that trip back and forth from Kalamazoo, Michigan to Pawpaw, Michigan often. And you know, one of the roads, one of the primary roads that I would take, I come up to an intersection. It was a T. And on the other side, there was a nursing home. And when the Lord saved me, I suddenly noticed that nursing home. And I would sit there at that stop sign and I would look at that nursing home and I began to think about all the people in there. And you just start thinking they're old, they're lonely, no family, probably hate to be in there. I thought, I need to go visit those people. Do you know something? I probably drove past that place in the thousands. Maybe, I don't know if it would be tens of thousands, but thousands of times probably I drove by that nursing home when I was lost. I never thought about it one time. It was probably within the scope of my vision. I didn't think about it. I didn't care about it. And if you could basically see what I was thinking about... Every other time that I passed that nursing home, you would have found I was thinking about my pleasure, my life, my test coming up, absorbed with my problems, absorbed with my life. But something strange happened when God saved me. Suddenly, it's like the eyes are opened. I'm no longer entirely preoccupied. Do you know what? It's very interesting when we think about the depravity of man in a lost state. You know, God looked down before before He sent that flood on the earth. He He said He He looked down there at mankind. He said the Lord saw that the wickedness was great in the earth, and He said that every imagination, every, every thought of the imagination of their hearts was only evil continuously. And you know, we hardly think that could be true. But because we are so blinded by pride and by selfishness that it is true. It is true. Our, our, the, every intention of the thought 
Our heart is only evil continuously in our lost state. We are selfish. We are self-occupied. We're incapable, incapable of putting ourselves in somebody else's shoes. We're incapable of transferring our love for ourself to another. There's, there's a self-obsession with us. And you know what, you know what happens? We get saved and still a measure of that probably too much of a measure of that, is still true of us. So you need verses like this. Paul says, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Obviously, he's dealing with spiritual gifts right there. But brethren, that is a truth that can be applied across the board, not just to spiritual gifts, but to every aspect of our life. Because, you know, we still are way too preoccupied with self. We still think way too highly of ourself. Instinctively, we expect from others what we often are in no way willing to do for others. We want them to do... We're hypersensitive when it has to do with us. We are so... We are are so uh, skilled at, at judging by... Two scales. We've got we've got two two measuring devices, two rulers. One we measure things on how it affects us, and the other is how it affects other people. And we measure by two different scales. And then what we're being told, what Jesus is saying is no 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 no. Same scale. Use the same scale. You gotta spin this thing around. In fact, Paul even says consider them even more highly than yourself. Even use a better scale on them than you use for yourself. Brethren, this is, this is what we're confronted with. And you know, you know one of the problems when we're lost is the whole time we're exalting self, we don't really much like the God of Scripture because that God of Scripture is a God who dreadfully interferes with my self-importance. That God of Scripture threatens me. Oh, for somebody that's self-absorbed, they don't like a God like that. But then what happens? What happens? Somebody gets saved. The gospel comes in. The Spirit of God convicts. What's the first thing that happens when the Spirit of God begins to convict? Well, what does He convict of? He begins to convict of sin. And he begins, and you know what happens? Jesus said, it's not for the, it's not for those that are well. They don't need a doctor. He said those that are sick. He, He never came to call the righteous. He came to call sinners. And you know what happens? The gospel begins to affect somebody. What's one of the first things that begins to happen? They recognize their self that they have worshipped is not such a great guy or such a great gal. They begin to recognize they're not such a good person that they thought they were. They're pretty defective. They begin to see their own sin. That that One of the great evidences the gospel is beginning to yield fruit in a person's life. They realize themselves as sinner. A person's eyes, they get open. They begin to... Not just see, but to bemoan their selfishness. They begin to think about the things they've done in their life, and some of just oh, it it can cause tears and mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And a supernatural wonder takes place. What happens? Well, according to His great mercy. He causes us to be born again. That's what happens to a living hope through this resurrection of Jesus Christ. We get born again. We become new creations in Christ and old things are passed away and suddenly all things become new. Suddenly you can just start looking at a nursing home and it registers on your radar. Wow, there are actually people over there that are lonely. 
that are old, that are forgotten. You know, families put their family members in nursing homes and they forget them. Let alone, I mean, you think about people that are laboring off in other places or people who are in prison. You know, you think about the, the North Koreans that are in these camps. If you're, we hardly even think. Brethren, we can become so forgetful, but what happens is suddenly we become these new creations. And you know what, you know what we find is he bore our sins in his own body on that tree and he did it for a reason. He did it so that we might be freed from unrighteousness. We might be given to righteousness. We might be given to people that, that actually are people of his own possession and zealous of good works. We're those kind of people. And, and we read in Scripture what well, we love because He first loved us. And see, something happens. The Spirit of God begins to produce this fruit in our life, which starts with love. Suddenly we begin to notice, what is love? We begin to notice other people. We begin to notice other people's problems, other people's needs. Our eyes are suddenly open. We actually begin to look around at the world. And suddenly, one of the big things that happens when a person is generally converted, their eyes are open. They actually start looking around at their family, friends, co-workers, and they recognize they're all lost. Unless you happen to come from some kind of Christian family, but a lot of us haven't. You suddenly, you're open, your eyes are open to the fact that the vast amount of world is going to hell. They're perishing. They're they're not in a good... Suddenly you begin to view people and you know what happens? We begin to view people not according to the flesh. Isn't that what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5? He says we no longer view people according to the flesh. Suddenly, you know what? We start viewing people according to their relationship with God. We start viewing people with regards to eternity. Suddenly our eyes are open. The guy standing in front of you in the supermarket line is no longer just this blurry blob in front of you that you take hardly no notice of, but you begin to recognize in a hundred years, that guy is probably going to be in hell. I mean, the reality is a few there be that find it, and it's not very likely this guy in front of me is probably a Christian, not based on statistics. It's very likely this man is going to perish in his sin. You got to look at people and you know what? Love allows us to suddenly open our eyes and begin to behold people like this. And, and what happens? You know what happens? Our eyes get open to the saved. And what what do we see there? Somebody else that Christ died for. Somebody else that's in the family. As much as we're supposed to do good to all men, especially to those that are of the household of faith, we suddenly look at these people. They're our brothers and sisters. These are people that the Father dearly, dearly loves. Loves so much that He sent His own Son to die for. We We find we have this family bond with them that's closer than even in our physical relationships. Suddenly the people in the church, we recognize we're going to dwell together with these people forever. These Christians are deeply loved by God. As I mean, that's, that's what happens. We suddenly see, well, we're going to take care of these. We're going to take care of these people. I mean, our goods are going to be at their disposal. That's why all of a sudden those, those early disciples, they began to go sell their lands. Yeah, but that land was your grandfather's land. It, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I got brothers and sisters in the church. You ever seen? I mean, it's the only animated thing I've ever shed a tear over. That, that, Perpetua. Have you ever, any of you seen the, the, is it the torchlighters? Perpetua. Her father breaks, all of these guards break in when they're having a meeting. And here are these slaves. And she says, she is my sister. 
Brethren, that's how you feel once you get saved. It doesn't matter what color their skin is. It doesn't matter what their background is. These are my people. That's what happens. And then the lost. Now we all of a sudden have our eyes to see them for what they are. They're now what we used to be. We see they're dupes of the devil. They don't know what they do. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. They don't know what they do when they go down there and they rant and rave against our preachers. And Brethren, God help us to not see people as just these impersonal objects. We see them for what they are. They're slaves of sin. They're ignorant. They're blind. They're just like we were. And what does that produce? It produces pity. Brethren, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. If you were sitting in the Congo, or you were sitting in Haiti, or you were sitting in Afghanistan, or in Manchester City Center, not even realizing that there was a gospel, you knew there was religion But you really had no idea. You basically, your thought was basically all false religion. I need to be a good guy, but I'm not a good guy. You have no idea that Christ came for bad people. That He came to take our sins upon Himself and as a gift and you have no, you're sitting there in the dark. There are those that sat in darkness. They saw a great, you're in that darkness. There you sit. You don't know. You don't know just how badly you're in trouble. You're in your sin. You know what it said? You remember what it said? Ephesians chapter two. You're separated from Christ. You're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You're strangers to the covenants of promise. You have no hope. You are without God. And you are in the world. And your days are few. And hell is coming. And you don't know. What would you want somebody to do unto you? Brethren, do you know John G. Payton, I believe, I believe that this, he's the one that had this said to him. John G. Payton was a Scotsman, 1800s. He sailed from this United Kingdom and he went down to the New Hebrides Islands, 1850s, and he took the gospel to cannibals on those islands. Two Englishmen by the name of Williams and Harris that went before him, they no more than arrived on the beach and they were clubbed and eaten. He goes to these islands with the gospel. Do you know he began to preach that gospel? He began to preach that gospel. He preached that gospel. Eventually, there was a revival there. The second island that he ministered on, it's, it's thought that almost the entire island was converted. Do you know what they asked him after they were converted? Does anybody know? How long have you had that gospel? 
1,800 years. And you're only sending somebody to us now? There's a therefore. Jesus wants you to think. Your heavenly father, you being evil, what has your heavenly father done? I'll tell you what he did. He saw you and he ran and he embraced you and he put the best robe on you and he put sandals on your feet and he killed the fatted calf and he put rings on your finger. Therefore, brethren, therefore, do you, I mean, do you have a sense of this? All your sins have been laid on Christ and he was punished in your place. Do you know what he did? He made you a free man. You see what he mean? I mean, you are free. You're no longer under the law. You're no longer under sin. You're no longer under the devil. You are free. Do you realize in your worst day, when you get up and you're grumpy and you say some bad thing to your roommate or your spouse or whoever it is, and you feel ugly and you feel whatever, on your worst day, do you recognize you have an advocate with the Father and there is no sin held against you and they are cast as far as east as from the west? You're a free man. Because on your worst day, you are absolutely freely forgiven. You are absolutely freely accepted and you have a right to access God. You will never have to pay for a single one of your sins. You can confess them. and He is faithful and just to forgive. You see, brethren, we are free to love. And if you trip up in the midst of trying to love other people, you're a free man. You're not, you're not like Catholics under this bondage where you got to go say all your Hail Marys. You're free. Christ has paid it. Brethren, we're free. And Paul says, just don't use your freedom for the flesh. But we're free to love. We're free. Jesus says this, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And there we are. Whatever you want others to do to you, do, do that. And I'll guarantee you this. If you were sitting in your darkness and in your filth, just unknowingly running to perdition, I know what you'd want. I know what you'd want done to you. You'd want somebody to bring you the light of the gospel. Father, I pray. Help us to be people that live out this reality, not just to be hearers, but to be doers. I pray, Lord, make us a people. Conform us to the image of this golden rule. I pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You are dismissed.